Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. How can hydrogen help deliver the things we need most? At Chevron, we're exploring ways to expand our hydrogen fuel capabilities to help make heavy-duty transportation lower carbon. And we're working with vehicle makers and commercial truck fleet operators to help scale the hydrogen fuel industry. Because it's only human to believe innovation can help deliver a brighter future. Learn more at chevron.com slash hydrogen. Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director, PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show with my co-host, executive editor, Frank Washcook. You like that intro, don't you, Frank? You wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. And this is a very special podcast because we're in the studio with our guest for the first time since... Frank, 2020, Yeah, I would crazy say. to think about it. Yeah, we used to do every single show in person. Clearly then we didn't. Um, but now we're getting back to in person in our new studio with uh, Bill Fitzpatrick, our podcast guru, and Lara Vandenberg, who's CEO and founder of Publicist. Is it Publicist or Publicist? It's Publicist. Yeah, because we don't want to get confused with that holding company, do no, we? No, it's not the French holding company. No, absolutely. I wish. Yeah, well, one day. <laughs> one day you'll one be that day. But welcome, Lara. Good to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm great. It's so good to be here. I know we've spoken about this for a little while, and it's it's awesome to be back in person. Yeah, and you're you're kind of you've been spending pandemic down in Puerto Rico, haven't you? So, and you're in New York for a couple of weeks. So it's good to catch you in town and be able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And publicist will find out what it does and trends in hiring and talent. We'll also talk about some of the big stories of the week. PR Week launched its Bellwether survey for 2022. Fascinating findings from that. We'll dig into it. PR Week's Hall of Fame, the 2022 class, has been unveiled. So we will talk about that. Did you catch the royal funeral? You couldn't really miss it on American TV. We will talk about that. Patagonia, what an incredible story that is. Um, The founder kind of gave away the company. True Purpose, we'll find out. The UN Secretary General, he was calling out PR in his opening comments uh, this week's UN Week in New York, which we all know about because you can't get anywhere. And Hill and Olin has made an interesting acquisition and we've got the usual batch of people moves and people stories. But Lara, let's start with you. Publicist, you launched that in May 2020. That must have been a bit of a story, like two months into the pandemic. Tell us about it. Tell us what you do and tell us how the last couple of years has been in in building a a startup. Yeah, so we launched Publicist in May of 2020 and it was supposed to be, I think it was March 9, 2020. We'd been building the company for about a year before that and I just remember every day was, is today the right day to launch? And there was no right day to launch. And so it ended up being at 3am at a kitchen table in Perth, Western Australia, doing a live cross um, with some media companies. So not ideal. So you'd found yourself back in Australia, which is your home country Mm -hmm. um, at that time. So 
Yeah, crazy times thinking back, wasn't it? And yeah, March 9th, there were definitely other things going on for sure. Right there. But tell us what Publicist is in essence and, and what, you, what you do and how you've grown in the last couple of years. Yes, yeah, so Publicist is an online platform. We work with brands and agencies to help them source, hire, manage, pay, deal with all of the compliance of all of their external marketing and comms workforce. So I was in the industry, both comms and marketing, for you know, 10 years prior. And I had two key pain points. The first was access to talent is really hard to access. Pain point number two was everyone yet no one in corporate actually owns the hiring process. And what I mean by that is under the marketing or comms team, you identify the pain point, what you need to hire for. Then there's a dance back and forth with recruitment and HR, ops, finance, legal, everyone has has buy-in here. And what we really wanted to do was build a platform to make that seamless, really get rid of what we refer to as a talent tax that a lot of staffing agencies are putting on hiring humans and work with brands to help them save money and, and time. Yeah. Now, is it simplistic to sort of say you're like a there were a few, there's a few talent platforms, aren't you? Like, like Fiverr, mm-hmm. but you're very much specialising in the comms and marketing space. So, that would that be a good analogy? And I suppose another little element of this is the amount of staffers that people hire on a freelance or temporary basis. They don't talk about it a great deal, but all agencies do for sure, don't they? And I suppose in many ways it was the perfect time to launch a platform like this. Everybody's suddenly being sent to work from home. Yeah, so you're right. There are marketplaces like Fiverr and Upwork and they are what we refer to as horizontal marketplaces. So you can go on and get your taxes done or a logo designed. We're a really premium network and we refer to ourselves as a verticalized platform. So we only do anything that touches marketing, creative, communications, content and production. We really believe that that specialized talent needs a home. And then to your point, the freelance economy, what not a lot of people are talking about is by 2023, which is three and a half months from now, 50% of our workforce is going to work for themselves. I think that it was always going to happen and COVID completely accelerated that move to freelance and the idea of a, a solopreneur. But it's really interesting that these people want to remain working for themselves and not go back into corporate America. So can you just clarify that 50% of all workers or workers in marketing. Com- in marketing, right. So 50%, that's extraordinary. I mean, um, how has that changed from pre-COVID, for example? So I think what's really interesting is up until 10 years ago, the role of a CMO was a functional leader. And today we see the role of a CMO as a business critical leader. And what I mean by that is 10 years ago, the CMO, who at the time, you know, is, and still oversees comms, was responsible for brand, creative, advertising and communications. Fast forward to today, the CMO looks after P&Ls for the first part. It's uh, data, it's insights, it's strategy, it's product, it's customer experience. Um So with the expansion of responsibilities of the CMO, we have seen this industry grow exponentially. There was was a report that LinkedIn put out of May of 2021 to May of 2022. They saw the statistic was a 374% increase in marketing and communications jobs posted. And so we've really seen the industry grow by skill set. And I think that what's interesting is brands and agencies are tending to hire 
generalists and we're seeing um, where people are outsourcing is really on the specialist. And as the category grows, people are becoming these hyper-specialists in, you know, whether it's it's crisis comms or performance marketing or everything. Yeah, it's, I mean, if we look at our agency business report, for example, for 20, analyzing 21, the whole market was up 20%. And the feeling was that it could have grown even more mm-hmm. if you could have got hold of the right people or the talent to do it. People were turning away work, they were turning away clients, they were turning away new business. So that kind of tallies with that LinkedIn report but it's uh, that's extraordinary isn't it to think that uh, the business has grown by such a massive scale how much do you think the whole sort of return to the office people deciding oh, actually I don't want to live in New York anymore it's too expensive or whatever I want to move somewhere else how much are all those factors playing into this and just that more the freedom to be where you are and work when you want how much does all that play into the growth of freelance working and also presumably the growth of your platform give us an idea of how publicist has grown yeah so look i think that that is a huge driver of the future of work um people that do not want to work five days in an office nine till five perhaps the company's values no longer apply to their own and i think that Pre-pandemic, we lived in a society that the company that you worked for dictated the market. During the pandemic, it became a talent economy that the talent dictated the companies that they wanted to work for, the terms in which they were working on, the hours in which they worked. What's interesting as we do go into an economic slowdown is it's now the pendulum is kind of becoming a little more even uh, and we're finding a nice balance there. And so I think that the future of work is definitely driving people to move out of the city, move to other up-and-coming cities. Um, it'll be interesting to see where it lands. Yeah, for example, if in a year's time we have a recession, maybe, like you say, that pendulum will swing back the other way and maybe the trend will will reverse a little bit. But I think some of the things are going to stay forever, aren't they? Just tell us about publicists and how many... How's it grown? How many jobs are on there? How many folks are, are sort of engaging with the platform? So it's a great question and it is ever changing. And, and what's really interesting about Publicist and the data uh, and the insights that we see, what is being posted on the platform and our clients are almost a reflection of what is happening in culture. And so last year, you know, we were inundated with both healthcare and then crypto new clients. Um, We've worked with brands from Amazon on the, you know, really big level to startups that haven't even launched yet. And so what's interesting about Publicist is we've got this vetted community of thousands and thousands um, of both comms and marketing professionals um, who have a minimum years of experience. We look at things like um, portfolios and references to skills, industries, organizational experience, um, soft skills. We look at, you know, on the platform, there's over 300 skill sets within the comms and marketing industry and then 60 industries. So companies that are using us are getting a very specialized output if they need a go-to-market strategist for a cybersecurity company, for example. The talent pool is growing. We have tens of thousands on a wait list and working with, you know, as I mentioned, small brands, big brands, small agencies, big agencies, but it's it's going really well. And how, where is the talent? Is it global? Are they all over the place? I mean, if you're doing production work or design or web production or something like that, I guess it doesn't matter where you're based, does it? Give us a, give us a sense of how many people are in the US versus the rest of the world. So we, our um, go-to-market was North America. We also have a presence in the UK and Australia. 
you are right apart from compliance and, and labour laws, but for the most part, yes, you can be can be remote. 90% of our talent pool is in the US. So what's the argument? Give me the argument for finding someone on Publicist versus Fiverr, for example. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's people on Fiverr who do have these skills. What's the argument for using Publicist? Yeah, so Publicist is a really vetted community. I think when it comes to brand, people really care that it's a trusted human. Um, as I mentioned, we have these incredibly rich portfolios to understand very quickly on someone's body of work, who their relationships are, their references with Fiverr, and I've used it before. Um, it's really cheap. It's really quick project base, and ours is ours is not that. Okay, so this is more for longer term uh, projects, and you're working now with an enterprise products whereby you, I guess, have a, a more in depth relationship with agencies or in house clients. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so look, we we have a really close relationship with a lot of the chief people officers at agencies and then the CMOs uh, at big brands. Um, What our enterprise product does is rather than, you know, that small startup needing to hire one person, uh, someone can go on and hire 100 or 500 people. Uh, They then have the data. It's, you know, hiring agile and external talent to this point it really hasn't been a repeatable process to understand things like what is an average rate, upload your NDAs, have your payments all done through this platform. And so we're really trying to to make hiring your external workforce and being a platform partner a repeatable and seamless and, again, cost-saving experience. All right, and just to finish up, Lara, what's what do you expect to see in the next six months? What are the biggest trends that are going to be hitting the talent world and you know the sort of return to office world if if you like or non-return to office as it may be so i think that we'll see an increased trend of these solopreneurs and people working for themselves i don't think that that is going anywhere what's interesting about a lot of our customers is a lot of our customers actually have hiring freezes right now but contingent work does not you know, is not is not impacted. Um, so I think people will continually rely on on freelancers and on fractional remote uh, employees as they need to scale up and scale down. As everyone's really watching uh, their bottom line closely. Yeah, interesting stuff. So thanks for telling us all about that. Congrats on launching a startup in COVID and Thank making you. it work and continued good luck with that. We'll get your input into some of the big stories. Frank, big week for PR Week. We uh, launched our Bellwether survey for 2022 last week. And it's fascinating findings, isn't it? It really does provide the ultimate snapshot of a, an industry that's really on top of its game. Yeah, and the one thing that jumps out at me is that if you look at the findings from this year's Bellwether, um, it reflects a lot of what we hear in talking to people out there and talking to CCOs and people who lead communications departments in that uh, there are new skills required uh, for them because their jobs are more important than they were before the pandemic. And now their CEOs want them to be experts on um, things like social issues, things like political issues, um, when they should step in and talk about a hard topic when they shouldn't. Um, and that can be everything from looking for uh, intelligence about uh, gas prices or the Russia-Ukraine war or uh, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. It can be any of these things. Um, and so CEOs are looking for chief communications officers and people who run communications departments to have those sort of social and political skills and be able to navigate all those issues. Uh, it makes sense when you think about everything that's happened 
in the world more broadly over the past couple of years and um, all of the soft skills that are required in terms of bringing people back to work in the office. It does, yeah, and it's it's it really does portray an industry at the top of its game, like I said, which is being relied on by the C-suite. This old, have we got a seat at the table? That's gone. The seat is there. You've got now got to step up and deliver. And Lara, I guess from your point of view, one of the most interesting things was that for all of the last four years, when when asked what are the skills that are most important, writing always came out number one every year until this year when it's cr- experiencing crisis communications is now number one and listening is number two and writing is down at number three. That's That seemed really interesting to me and a fundamental shift, right, in the skills that people are looking for. It's really interesting, particularly as we evaluate both CMOs and and CCOs, what the hard skills are and what the soft skills are. And it's almost like soft skills are becoming more important. There is no linear career path of a lot of these people. And so that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, listening, we're not talking social listening here. We're talking the ability to actually engage the ears rather than the mouth, right? And uh, that's it was that was one of the most interesting findings. And uh, there's so much more in this report that you can check out at prweek.com. And there's a great premium edition with lots more information if you want to get hold of that. So do check it out. Again, on the PR Week front, Frank, we've unveiled our Hall of Fame honorees for 2022. They're going to be celebrated at a great uh, event on December the 5th in New York City. But talk us through the honorees for 22. It's another great group. We have this year Kimberly Good from BMO Financial. We have John Harris from ConAgra, Bill Amata uh, from IW Group. Don Imperato from BCW, representing the agency side, along with Melissa Wagner-Zorkin, the uh, co-founder of We Communications. And we have Nigel Powell, who is the EVP and Chief Communications Officer at Nike. Very uh, heavy uh, Pacific Northwest influence uh, this year. Yeah, why not? With both Nike and, uh, and we represented it, and it's a great group. Uh, it's always a great group, but this is a... Um, particularly good group this year. Yeah, there is life outside the East Coast and uh, always uh, uh, happy to reflect that at PR Week. Yeah, it's the 10th year, actually, of our Hall of Fame. So quite a landmark year. It's going to be a brilliant celebration because we'll be able to be back in person and celebrate together, which I think everyone's really enjoying and having having the opportunity to do check out the the write-ups of those candidates and uh, do come along and join us on December the 5th. Now, what were you doing on Monday, Frank? Were you tuned into the royal funeral in the UK or did you resolutely have the TV switched off? What was going on and what did you think of it all? It was a little bit of both. I, I had it on in the background. I find a lot of this stuff fascinating because, you know, we, we obviously don't have monarchs here uh, or haven't in well, some Beyonce, time. Beyonce, Queen of Brooklyn. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Outnumbered by the Commonwealth here. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. It was, uh, it, was, it was interesting. I'm curious as to what you all think about. Does it say something good for brand UK, brand Britain? Is this going to be the last big royal funeral? I mean, I kind of raised more questions with me than, than answers. Well, I don't think anyone else could put a show on like that. Let's be honest. It was extraordinary, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The, way, the way it was put together, obviously, it's been planned for decades, literally. I mean, that was one of the interesting things that came out, wasn't it? That yeah. The plans had been in place for 25, 30 years and executed flaw- flawlessly. All the different details 
And yeah, you're right. There's there nowhere else in the world that you can see something like that. I knew people who went and slept out for 24 hours on the mall to be in the front row. So just to get a glimpse of it all as it went past. And uh, the bit that got me was the, the corgis when um, the Queen's um, coffin was brought into Windsor Castle and they started barking. And her horse, Emma, which was looking a little forlorn there. Um, it was those little human details, which kind of connect with you just because, uh, you know, it's, this is our lives in the UK. We've never known anything different than having the Queen. Um, I'd love to know what you think, Lara. Obviously, Australia is part of the Commonwealth, and maybe this puts the future of the Commonwealth under discussion because the Queen was a unique individual and whoever replaces her, especially King Charles, is going to be different for sure. But and but there'll never be someone in charge for 70 years like she was. She, her first Prime Minister was Winston Churchill. Her last one was Liz Truss two days before she died. I'll leave uh, everyone to make the comparison between those uh, two uh, states' people. Um, but what did you think as, an, as, a, as a, a member of the Commonwealth? Yeah, look, I think that last week was a really sombre week. I think that this week has been more of a celebration and I think it's been really interesting to separate the Queen from the brand of the Crown and the Royals and she absolutely was a brand. And, Frank, to answer your question, I think that this might be the last massive funeral for one of the royals. Um, But, look, it it was sad and I think it was a celebration. I'm not necessarily a royalist per se, but I think it was a a sad event. Yeah, I think I wrote a blog about it and I called her the Chief Communications Officer of Brand Britain and uh, there's a bunch of stories on both PR Week and Campaign about that. But, yeah, you were going to say something, Frank? You, uh, you were surprised, it's fair to say, by the amount of media coverage it got in the U.S., right? I was. Every yeah. single network covered it wall to wall from early morning till lunchtime. And this is a time when Puerto Rico's got a hurricane going on. There's other big news stories. It's U.N. General Assembly week. There's a lot going on. But it seemed to me that everyone was absolutely fascinated by it. I mean, I could make some comments about the level of the coverage and the comment um, but, yeah, it was wall-to-wall, wasn't it? It wasn't a case of uh, not being able to find a, a, a TV to watch it. What, what was the coverage like in the UK? Was it just 24-7? Was it? Um, I, I know our, our sister magazine campaign, of course, ran some stories about how their advertising was pulled, at least during the day of the funeral. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's appropriate. And, and uh, there were also some really lame attempts from, from brands. I think we talked about yeah. this, didn't we? Like Thompson, the travel company, and and some others. You know, you've got to be very careful in how you engage in that. I did get an alert from the BBC that David Beckham had been in line with the Eight potato hours. chips or something. <laughs> for, 12 Which hours, I thought was apparently. a bit unnecessary. But um, I, I think... Well, I, these things got great discussion points. Like, you know, Harry... Was he being disrespectful not uh, singing the anthem? Was Meghan deliberately obscured from the pictures by a giant candle? It was, it's every single detail to this was analysed to the nth degree on social media. I just find all the coverage of what uniform Harry is or isn't wearing to be just a bit too much. Yeah, and it was know? probably a non-story anyway, because yeah. uh, if, you, if you actually looked at it. The, the big question is, Lara, have you wor- learnt the words to your new national anthem? <laughs> Slowly learning. <laughs> that's, that's an in-joke for uh, uh, Commonwealth. Uh, I'll let us move on in a second, but do, do, you think, um, do you think Charles came off well in his first week in the, 
in charge, so to speak. I thought the incident with the pen was really didn't paint him in a good yeah. light. Um, it was kind of bizarre in my Well, opinion. it was just showed him to be a petulant little boy, really, which, you know, some would say that maybe he is. <laughs> He's led a privileged, spoiled life, and, and the queen, he doesn't have the same qualities that the queen had she would never have reacted like that and it and it does give you an insight into his character but i think in general he he did handle a tough week well sure. you could tell when he when the final scene if you like when the queen's coffin was lowered into the crypt and you know and the crown was taken off the coffin and it was all of a sudden it's over to you now and uh, and that's your mother at the end of the day sure, everyone sure. could relate to that right and I think it did, you know, contrasted with the Duke of Edinburgh, her husband's funeral, which was during COVID, mm. when you had that iconic image of her being on her own. And, and, and it was really sad. So this was a, you know, a full on and, and people came out in their thousands, their hundreds of thousands. So, yeah, an interesting portrait of Brand Britain. And yeah, of course, the number of times I've heard that line, Lara, I'm not a royalist, but in fact, I've said it myself because I'm not, but... You, you couldn't help but be engaged in it and to reflect. It's history. It, yeah, it is. It's, it absolutely is. So, yeah, an, an extraordinary event that will never be repeated. Let's talk about another extraordinary event, Frank. Patagonia, the, the founder, gave away the company, which you, some have portrayed as the ultimate purposeful act. Others have said, well, you're going to save a billion dollars in taxes. Where, who's right? Where's the, uh, the happy medium? I have to admit, I, I considered the second part of that quite a bit, too, and how we, it is a billion dollars in taxes. Leave him alone. So, uh, in a nutshell, um, in a nutshell, it's what you said. He's, he's essentially transferred uh, the company and its earnings uh, into a different type of organization in which all of its profits will go toward either uh, land conservation or environmental issues. It's an extraordinary move. Uh, you, you often don't see billionaires doing this, to say the least. I don't know if it's I don't know if you're going to see any other organizations or people or founders do this. Uh, I, I think it's a very unique case. But this this does come as we're having this ongoing conversation about purpose and ESG spending and all of those different things and what the true purpose of a business is. So it is a very interesting move. I think it's very necessary given what we know is going on with the climate. I don't have my fingers crossed that other organizations are going to do the same thing though. Yeah, Lara, do you get a sense from the talent on the publicist platform about how purpose plays into them? You know, how much it factors into the type of work they want to do, the type of clients they want to work with. Is that a big factor and, and do, do does it play into your algorithm at all? So it currently doesn't. It's a great idea. We can bring it You're welcome. You can have that one for free. (laughs) I truly think it is more important for the Gen Zs and the younger millennials. It is, you know, working for a purpose-driven company is, it's almost essential uh, at this point. The generations beyond that, sure, I think back to our point in terms of during the pandemic, the talent economy where a lot of, um, you know, candidates were evaluating companies, that was a huge driver. And so we did see that back to the CEO of Patagonia. I think it was absolutely remarkable. I think, you know, regardless of the the tax situation, I just think it's incredibly commendable and hats off to him. I think he's been unfairly scrutinized here. Okay. 
Point taken. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you how I really feel. <laughs> uh, well, you're Australian, but they tend to do that. Um, talking of the environment, Frank, the UN Secretary General at the start of the week in New York, in his opening comments, he really called out PR, didn't he, on the work with energy clients in quite a pejorative fashion, which uh, I thought was a little unfair, actually, to be honest. I I don't know if I would say it was unfair, but I was very surprised that it hit this level of commentary from uh, the UN Secretary General in, in the biggest remarks he's going to make all week uh, in their biggest week of the year. Um, I mean, if you want to call out the oil companies, I think that's fine. But then, you know, getting into vendors in a way is a bit bit weird, I thought. Um, and concentrating on the PR vendors yeah, rather than the yeah. advertising or the media companies, right? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was very surprised at that. It plays into this thing, um, a blog I wrote the other week, about PR needs to do a better job of PRing itself because I, I think we've got to get away from this narrative that PR and, and PR agencies are all about dark art spin. He used those phrases mm-hmm. he, and he, he's, he's reading really from a, that lobby group Clean creative. It seemed like playbook, it. Playbook, isn't it? It was almost yeah. word for word. It seemed like it. It made me wonder what his inspiration was because, as you mentioned, he did not call out the advertising firms, and we know what the budgets are, and we know where most yeah. of the money is going. So uh, it was very interesting. To say that billions of dollars are being spent on PR is nonsense. You know, it might be on the marketing services companies throughout. What do you think, Lara? I think that his PR who briefed him probably did us all a disservice here. Um, I do think it's an interesting question and where is the line in terms of fossil fuels versus their enablers from, you know, the financial institutions he mentioned. It wasn't just PR, but it's, you know, it's what is the difference to plastic manufacturers versus consumers that are consuming the plastic? Who Who's at blame here? Yeah, and he equated it with the work on the tobacco industry. And I think PR firms would say, look, we're trying to enable change here. So we're happy to, this is the Edelman argument, we are happy to work with energy clients if it is helping them transition their businesses to I don't, a I don't cleaner think future. A comparison there, though. I with don't think tobacco, no. Tobacco. I, I, ju- I just don't think there is. No, it's a false equivalent. And I, I don't think anybody would accuse me of being like too easy on these firms. But <laughs> I, I would say that, I mean, with tobacco, they knew it was harmful and they lied for decades. You know, we uh, everyone is aware of the climate situation and what fossil fuels do. And there, are, there aren't any big fossil fuel companies out there saying, oh, well, you know, climate change is a hoax. It's just a matter of are they moving in the right direction quickly enough to, to green energy. I mean, I just don't think it's a comparison to tobacco. No, I didn't think it was a, a, a relevant comparison either. And, of course, we've talked about this as well. You've got activist investors now saying to Chevron, you should double down on fossil fuels. We need um, we need more oil. We need more gas. Yeah. And uh, they've got to navigate all that as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's more complicated than he than he made it out to be. In that, that, and we've got to get the narrative over there. So, uh, okay, interesting acquisition. Acquisition story, Frank. Hill and Knowlton has made a play. Really interesting. Uh, WBP's Hill and Knowlton has acquired the Latin America-focused agency Jeffrey Group. Uh, really a, a trailblazing agency, I think, in that uh, primarily Spanish-speaking Latin America-focused PR um, subsector of the industry. Uh, so um, Hill and Knowlton has acquired Jeffrey Group and at the same time, its own uh, Brazil-based firm, Ideal, is expanding internationally. So they're expanding into North America, Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., and also into EMEA and the U.K. 
So really um, sort of cards on the table, pushing the money in uh, move here, doubling down on Latin America uh, from H&K uh, and from WPP. Yeah, and Jeffrey Group was named after Jeffrey Sharlock, I right. believe. And, and is Jeffrey leaving the business now? And I think Brian Burlingame is going to run the business and also be H&K's lead in Latin America, if I, if I read that correctly. He's going to continue to serve as the chairman. So he's uh, Jeffrey Sharlock, that is, yeah. is uh, going to continue to serve as the chairman. So he will still be involved. Okay, and it's I think three hundred plus people, so it's a it's a fairly chunky yep. uh, acquisition there from H and K. Interesting stuff. You seeing lots of acquisitions, Lara? Is that yeah. a trend you've seen over the last couple of years? Does it and does that impact talent at all? I think there's a huge roll up in the industry from um, on the talent side. You know, talent companies to agencies. I, I no, nothing comes to mind that it's directly um, impacting talent. I think that you know it's always hard from a cultural standpoint to to work with with bigger companies, whatever that merger may be. But no, nothing. And then finally, Frank, let's talk about people moves, some big, big moves this week, including Wendy Lund going back to the agency world. Back to the agency world and more specifically back to WPP, where she was before. Uh, She used to run GCI Health, which is a part of BCW. So she is returning to that organization from Organon. Uh, which is a women's healthcare company. She's also the uh, former head comms executive at Planned Parenthood. We also have a change at the top of the comms organization at Beam Centauri. As Clarkson Hine is set to retire in February, his job is being split up between the chief communications officer, Jessica McDonald, and the chief public affairs officer, Brett Hale. Sticking with the boozy theme, we have uh, Molson Coors Beverage Company has promoted Rachel Dickens up to Senior Director of Corporate Affairs, so she's going to oversee all of corporate communications there. She is replacing Jen Martinez, who is leaving that company for a different opportunity. Listen, we're doing so many people stories, Lara. Um, you're, you're in the right business, I think. So uh, I guess all that's good news for you, isn't it? There are people moving uh, every week and uh, it shows no sign of slowing down. Absolutely not. It's interesting, though, we're seeing so many people yo-yo from brand to agency and back and even management consulting is coming in, which is interesting. Um, I like it. I think it, you know, as as we look at the future of agencies for the next five years, I think a shake-up is a good thing. Yeah, certainly for publicists to this. So, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's great to chat to you, Lara, and uh, continued good luck with publicists. Yeah, we look forward to having you back on in the future and seeing, uh, seeing some of these trends come to fruition. Thank you so much. This was fun. Yeah, and Frank, always a pleasure. Yes, thanks for having me on. Just a couple of dates for your diary. Don't, I mentioned the Hall of Fame, December the 5th, going to be a great night. PR Week Awards, the Oscars of the PR industry. The first deadline is next week, the 28th of September. And then you have a second deadline on the 14th of October. Make sure you're working on your entries. We'll be in Chicago in uh, the 10th and 11th of October for the PR Decoded Conference and the Purpose Awards. Really looking forward to that. First time in person since 2019. It's going to be a great event. 40 Under 40, one of the best nights of the year, isn't it? Yes, 27th of October. Are you involved in that? Well, I was on this 40 Under 40 list, but I'm not in town. Oh, my God, what's going on? I know, maybe the 50 Under 50. Surely there are regular flights from Puerto Rico to New York City. Lara. 
I think I'm at a conference in Orlando of all places. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we'll have a great night anyway. And uh, don't forget our salary survey and our bellwether survey, premium editions available for both of those, well worth getting for your end-of-year planning. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.